Welcome to another episode of Carpet City Cinema, a Gila Films podcast. I'm David Weaver, and I'm recording this on May 8th. So r- tonight, uh, earlier tonight, uh, Jay Leonard, producer extraordinaire of The Last Frankenstein, was down in New York City in the village for the screening of his latest directorial effort, Break Glass, at the uh, New York Cinefest. Uh, he was down there at the end of last week uh, to attend the opening ceremonies. Uh, went back down again with some of his team, and they've already gotten a couple award nominations for the movie. Um, Best Actor for Ricky DeRosa, who's this for him. This is his first time working with Jay, and then Best Actress for Susanna Bourne, who had also been in Jay's previous movie Middletown. And Jay said that uh, you know the the response from the festival, the encouragement from it has really been strong. So we're Really excited for him and his team. Uh, big shout out to all of them. Again, also, this uh, film had a couple of the cast members from The Last Frankenstein, Keely Sheridan, Jeff Riano, and Jorge Luna. So props to them all for uh, getting into this festival and screening in New York City, which is just you know an awesome experience. Uh, more specifically, Last Frankenstein, not too much new to report. Uh, I did get an email from the distributor just confirming they received the drive. So that process is in motion. Gotten some more writing done on the uh, sequel script. Uh, picked up uh, another book I might use for research, not sure yet. But um, yeah, so just kind of more of the same, but all heading in the right direction uh, with that. In the physical media realm, uh, a very exciting announcement was made uh, a few days ago, which actually does kind of touch upon Gila Films. Coming to Blu-ray from Film Masters, double feature release of two 1959 classics of the uh, exploitation genre, the Giant Gila Monster, and The Killer Shrews. And when I was younger and I you know, made short films, uh, I always called my production company Gila Films just because I was a fan of The Giant Gila Monster. Not even you know my favorite film or my favorite B-movie or anything even at that high level. I just, I just really enjoyed the film and just took that as, uh, applied that title to the name of uh, the so-called production company that made whatever shorts I was doing back in the day. And when it came time to make The Last Frankenstein, I was kind of like, I should probably come up with, you know, an actual name for uh, a company going forward, um, you know, just to have something consistent. Um, and, you know, I wrote a list of all these ideas I had, trying to come up with something that sounded uh, appropriately mid-century. And I didn't think of anything that really totally sat well with me. And I was kind of running out of time. I was finally I was just like, well, we're just sticking with Gila Films. Which, as I mentioned in a uh, podcast interview I did uh, once to promote The Last Frankenstein, it's, it, you know, I, I like the name, but it's also kind of a, a difficult name because so many people mispronounce it. You know, it's, you know, Gila Films or Gila Films or whatever, Gila Films. But that, that origin is tied to the giant Gila monster. But the giant Gila monster and the killer shrews were uh, two movies that came out in 1959, uh, shot in Texas by the same uh, group of people. Uh, produced by uh, Gordon McLendon, who was a really influential figure in radio history. And also helping him produce the movies was actor Ken Curtis, who uh, most people know as Festus on Gunsmoke. He was also in a number of John Ford movies. 
And uh, both films were directed by Ray Kellogg, who uh, later uh, was the co-director on the John Wayne movie, The Green Berets. And uh, The Killer Shrews, well, I should start with The Giant Helo Monster, because that's really the main feature of the Blu-ray, it seems like. The Giant Helo Monster, you know, it's a lot of fun. You know, and obviously, of course, both these movies have been understandably uh, riffed by Mystery Science Theater 3000. But uh, The Giant Helo Monster, which is just exactly, <laughs> exactly what the title promises, uh, you know, that's always got a place in my heart. Just I'm a big fan of Don Sullivan, the lead actor in that movie. Um, you know, he made a handful of cult movies in the late 50s. Uh, for this one, he also wrote the songs that are he sings in the movie, but he was in uh, Teenage Zombies for Jerry Warren, The Monster of Piedras Blancas, um, and a, another movie that's very close to me, uh, The Rebel Set, uh, in which he gets kind of uh, cast in an atypical role as a, a heavy. And it's just a fun movie, you know, uh, some nice barren Texas wasteland uh, landscapes. Um, you know, Lisa Simone, who was a French actress, who she didn't have really much of a career, but she was in uh, Missile to the Moon, another uh, cult film. Uh, this was kind of her big starring role that she was known for. But uh, she she plays uh, Don Sullivan's girlfriend in the film, and she's got a nice presence uh, to the movie. There's also a, a rather unforgettable uh, character in the movie, a radio DJ, uh, Horatio Alger Steamroller Smith. And, uh, you know, it's just, just like I said, it's just a fun flick. And the, uh, the cover art, which has been uh, released, advertises it as newly restored 4K scan from 35mm archival materials. Now, uh, both these movies are in the public domain. I don't know if the original camera negatives for these even exist anymore. Um, but, you know, I have faith that if they uh, had some good elements that it, this was going to turn out good. Uh, then The Killer Shrews, now that's, that's like I said, kind of almost being looked at as like a bonus feature, I think, on the disc. It says, uh, includes a restored HD print of The Killer Shrews. So I think reading between the lines, probably what materials they have for that film, I'm guessing, aren't quite as up to uh, par as the Gila Monster ones. But yeah, Killer Shrews, that stars James Best uh, from uh, Dukes of Hazard fame. And, you know, it's about a, a small scientific outpost uh, on an island um, where James Best uh, brings a supply ship to. And arriving there, he finds out that uh, due to the scientific experiments being conducted there, there have been created these dog-sized uh, man-eating killer shrews whose bite, if they even so much as bite you, scratch you with their teeth, get their saliva in you, you will die. Uh, you'll be killed. And so the uh, this small group of people have to basically barricade themselves, in, barricade themselves inside a uh, house while these uh, shrews are trying to uh, get in and eat them. Um, it's a film which it definitely <laughs> definitely has its issues. Um, especially with the acting department, uh, no disrespect. Uh, Gordon McLennan's actually in the movie, um, and I think he probably should have just stuck with radio broadcasting. And, uh, you know, Ingrid Gud, hopefully I'm not mispronouncing that. She's the leading lady, uh, Swedish actress. She, um, you know, she also uh, probably wouldn't uh, necessarily take home any awards for her performance. But the thing about this movie that I, I like is, uh, you know, despite the issues with the acting, this, you know, some people, of course, talk about the killer shoes themselves, which are basically like, you know, dogs wearing uh, uh, costumes. But the thing that I always enjoyed about this film is it definitely does still have this uh, bleak, overbearing tone to it. Again, 
the parts of Texas that this and the giant Gila monster were filmed in, it, it doesn't feel like the parts of Texas you're used to seeing in movies of that time where, uh, you know, it might be more of like the classic landscape of a Western film. Instead, this is kind of like just like the barren, desolate uh, stretches of Texas. And so you have these people holed up in this house where this, you know, man-eating enemy, a natural enemy is trying to force its way in and, um, you know, against this kind of like very, very stark uh, environment. It, it kind of uh, almost reminds you in some ways of a movie like Night of the Living Dead, which obviously is a much more uh, successful film, but it still still kind of plays on a lot of the same strengths that Night of the Living Dead uh, ha- uh, would better capitalize on. And again, you know, has its issues, but it still is successful in kind of building that uh, atmosphere of dread, impending doom of these, you know, man-eating creatures trying to get closer and closer to you as you're as you're stuck inside this small location and surrounded by them, and you really don't have a way out. Uh, also, the film also features uh, an appearance by uh, Baruch Lumet, the father of famed director Sidney Lumet, director of 12 Angry uh, Men, is in The Verdict and so many other films. He's in it as well. And Ken Curtis, uh, who I mentioned before, Festus, he's also in the film. So the bonus materials they're announcing for this disc includes a, uh, a documentary on the director of these two films, Ray Kellogg. It's called Ray Kellogg, an Unsung Master. And this is uh, coming from Ballyhoo Motion Pictures, which is uh, another great uh, production company specializing in uh, bonus features for cult films, uh, genre films. They did a great feature-length documentary on American International Pictures, which was included on one of the Mystery Science Theater discs. Um, They are responsible for the uh, documentary on... uh, cult filmmaker William Griffey, which is called They Cut, They Came from the Swamp. Great film. Check, it, check that one out. And uh, this documentary is written by C. Courtney Joyner and narrated by Larry Blamir, who is, of course, the uh, filmmaker behind the lost skeleton of cadaver films and who is, of course, a huge fan of cult cinema. It's going to come with um, full commentary tracks uh, on both films, uh, a booklet with essays, and films, the films will be presented both of their original theatrical ratio, aspect ratio, but also uh, in an academy ratio as well. Um, so yeah, I'm really excited for this. It's coming out uh, September 26th. And this is coming from a label. I, I think it's a brand new label called Film Masters. Um, don't really know much about them. Hoping, though, that, you know, that this will turn out to be a, a strong release. Obviously, they have a lot of, you know, really impressive extras lined up with some quality people behind them. So uh, keeping the faith that this will all turn out really well and maybe even be the beginning of a whole line of uh, these titles from this this newer company. So elsewhere in media news, we did have a passing I just wanted to touch on real quick, which is uh, Patricia Hamilton passed away, age 86. She was a Canadian actress who I grew up uh, being very familiar with because uh, my family and myself are big fans of the... Uh, classic 1985 Canadian TV movie, Anne of Green Gables, and its 1988 sequel, Anne of Avonlea. And in those, uh, Hamilton played uh, Rachel Lind, the uh, neighbor and friend of Marilla Cuthbert, Collie Dewhurst's Marilla Cuthbert, uh, who, of course, is the, the woman who adopts the Anne of the, of the title of those, of those films. And these were produced by uh, Kevin Sullivan, who continued to create uh, Anne of Green Gables product over like 30 years. Uh, you know, there was a, a TV show called Road to Avonlea, which also had its own Christmas special. There was an animated show. They did two more 
um, and TV movies, um, and in all of these, uh, Patricia Hamilton kept coming back to play this role. So she actually like played it for like over thirty years. Uh, but also as a horror fan, uh, people are familiar with her as as am I uh, for playing a key role in uh, one of the all time great Canadian horror films, the original My Bloody Valentine, and she played uh, Mabel, who is the uh, unfortunate townswoman uh, who. Uh, you know, has a run-in with a drying machine in a laundromat that does not go well for her. <laughs> but she also showed up in movies like Hal Ashby's The Last Detail. Um, she provided the voice of the adult Addie Mills uh, that narrates the uh, classic 70s TV movie The House Without a Christmas Tree with Jason Robards and Lisa Lucas. And she also provided the same uh, service on the, s- the first sequel, The Thanksgiving Treasure. Uh, her, her performance as Rachel Lynn did... Uh, win her a Gemini Award, which was at the time Canadians can, Canada's equivalent to the Emmys. So you know, great career. Uh, you know, a lot of uh, performances that you know speak to my nostalgia about my youth, um, as well as my love for uh, Canadian Canadian cinema and Canadian horror films. So definitely, uh, you know, props to her for that career, and you know, sad to see her move on. So last night I uh, took a trip to the pre-code era for a movie I watched. Um, the pre-code uh, movies are films that basically came out in this uh, period in the late 20s to early 30s. Uh, you could even say, I guess it goes back before that. But uh, films that predated the uh, enforcement of the production code, which was basically an attempt by the studios to avoid um, the government getting involved in uh, restricting content in their films. So they themselves uh, engaged in self-censorship by creating the production code, which basically was a list of um, moral standards uh, for film content. Uh, you know, things like you know, limitations on um, sexual uh, sexual displays in films, uh, limitations on, uh, you know, nudity, swearing, um, the depiction of... Uh, corruption among authority figures. And although the uh, production code had existed prior to 1934, it was really that year when they really started really cracking down and heavily enforcing it. And, you know, some people consider the uh, pre-code era as kind of starting with sound films. I guess if you want to look at it on a bigger scale, you could say any anything before... Uh, you know, all films, going back to the origin of films, are technically pre-code, but usually when people talk pre-code films, a lot of times they're they're referring to the sound era, not necessarily silence as much, although silence um, could get away with some of the, obviously, the same content as in the pre-code era. You know, these pre-code movies could uh, do things that you wouldn't see for the next 20 years in films as much. You know, they, you, they would have characters who are gay. They would uh, have uh, language in them, uh, you know, swearing. Uh, you know, not not like dropping F-bombs, but they could get away with a damn here and stuff. Um, they had anti-heroes like, you know, James Cagney's character in The Public Enemy. Um, they dealt with issues that uh, would become more controversial uh, later on, things like, uh, you know, drug use. Um, they uh, would, in their depictions of violence, could get away with more, uh, be a little more gruesome. You know, you see that in some of the pre-code horror movies like Murders in the Zoo, where a guy has his lips sewn together. Uh, you know, they they just it was just a time where you could show more on screen, and uh, 
because they were afraid that the government would get involved and start, uh, you know, putting their own censorship on on their industry. The uh, you know the the film studios decided oh, we'll, we'll do this ourselves. We'll take control of this. And then, of course, by you know post World War II era, going into the fifties, you know, people were pushing back against the code. I think there was just you know, you know, a sense of you know the difference between what was being portrayed in films and real life. Yeah, World War II obviously uh, brought home a darker side of life to audiences. Um, and that's where you kind of, after World War II, you see like the rise of the film noir movement where uh, you, again, have kind of like the anti-hero come back. You have a darker style to filmmaking itself in those movies. You have um, this boon in uh, social issue films, uh, the movies of Stanley Kramer, films dealing with things like racism um, and mental illness and alcoholism. And uh, you know, people just you know, kept pushing. The, the filmmakers would push more and more against the boundaries of the codes and you know, doing, doing things in films that they weren't really supposed to. Um, you know, Otto Preminger, of course, was a key figure there with movies like The Man with the Golden Arm, which dealt with drug addiction with you know, the Frank Sinatra film, the comedy The Moon is Blue, which was you know, considered sexually controversial at the time. And this, of course, led to the rating system coming about in the late 60s, where it was, the approach was basically, like, all right, you know, people... People want to see, uh, you know, a representation of reality, which is going to include things that the code wouldn't have allowed for. And so rather than trying to stop the unstoppable, um, we're going to just instill a ratings code, the M the, motion, the MPAA. And so we'll have, you know, uh, oh, you know, you can put the content you want into a film and then we'll just have this, this um, you know, a rating apply to it. And of course now, what, 50, 60 years later, with streaming taking such uh, a prominent position in, um, you know, the industry, the rating system is kind of even, you know, losing, uh, losing its its meaning. You know, obviously, still a huge theatrical market going on, uh, so it's not dead. But you know, it's not, I mean, everything's on YouTube, Netflix. You know all these apps, and you know anybody can just sign into these. So it really kind of loses any um, meaning. The idea of like a rating system. You know, it used to be a time, for example, Dawn of the Dead, the classic horror movie that came out in 1978, that was released as un unrated. You know, now back then you would have known that what that would have meant. That would have been meant like, okay, this is a really extreme movie because they they would have gotten worse than an R if they had gotten a rating and they didn't want to do that. So it's just going to be unrated. And nowadays, everything's like unrated. Like my movie, The Last Frankenstein, is an unrated film because I I know it's not going to really have a, a wide theatrical release. I'm not going to bother trying to get a rating from the MPAA. Um, so it's just, you know, it's just unrated. You know, it'd be like a TVMA, I guess. And so, you know, it's just interesting how those terms have changed over time. But to go back to the movie I watched uh, last night, Double Door is the name of the film, a Paramount movie from 1934. Uh, it's kind of, you know, really pushed a lot as this kind of gothic chiller with um, melodramatic aspects. But I would say it's kind of the reverse in watching it. It's more a melodrama with some gothic chiller aspects in it uh, near the end. But the film, it's... Uh, 
based on a play uh, of the same name by Elizabeth A. McFadden. And it's about the Van Brett family, uh, a very wealthy family living in New York City, 1910. And the kind of the head of the family is a woman named Victoria Van Brett, played by Mary Morris, uh, recreating her role from the stage. And she's a bitch, <laughs> frankly. She's a, a horrible person who is very domineering over her younger middle-aged sister, uh, Caroline, played by Anne Revere, and uh, their younger half-brother from uh, a different mother, Rip Van Brett, played by Kent Taylor. And uh, she's very disapproving of a marriage that's now happening between Rip and uh, a nurse he fell in love with, Anne Darrow, played by Evelyn Venable. And you know, she's against the marriage. She's against the idea of him marrying a commoner. Um, she uh, doesn't like the idea of this woman having any access to their fortune. Um, she's just completely uh, uh, unsupportive of it. She won't e the film starts out with the wedding uh, happening in their, in their huge mansion in Manhattan. And she doesn't even go downstairs to the wedding itself. She even has, um, <laughs> once she hears the wedding march being played on the organ, she uh, instructs the servants to mid mid playing to uh, lock up the keyboard, um, and and stop the music during the wedding march. But uh, Rip and Anne, his his new bride, are determined to make a new go of it. They go off on their honeymoon, and you know, and uh, you know, of the mindset that they should, uh, you know, within reason, try to uh, appease um, Victoria, but. It just becomes obvious with uh, time that, you know, Victoria is not interested in being appeased, that she wants to destroy this relationship, that she wants to bring Rip back under her control. And she'll go to any any means to do that. She, uh, you know, hires a private investigator and tries to insinuate that um, uh, Anne is being unfaithful to her husband. Um, she goes, tries to actually buy her off, um, has her lawyer, uh, you know, this is even before the wedding even happens. You hear about this that she tried to, you know, pay her to just back away, and uh, eventually uh, concocts uh, a rather nefarious uh, plan uh, rather quickly, uh, which is kind of where the film gets a lot of its, uh, you know, kind of more horror-esque reputation from, of uh, dealing dealing with Anne by utilizing this uh, hidden unknown vault which is in their estate, so. Uh, Victoria's father had built a soundproof room so that he could sleep undisturbed. And the only people in the house who know about it is Victoria and, you know, her, her, her sister Caroline. And we see this vault and hear about its history earlier in the film, uh, very prominently displayed. And we learn about how uh, Victoria punished Caroline by putting her in the vault when she was younger. Um, and so you know that this, uh, this chamber of horrors is going to play a, a key part in the plot later on. That, that um, you know, I, I, I'm not going to give away spoilers, but at the same time, I think you can kind of guess where this is all heading. It's a, a pretty, you know, short film. It's only 75 minutes. And I, uh, you know, I don't know to what degree it follows the play, which opened on Broadway the year before. Um, it definitely, you know, some of the films from this era, you know, this is the post-sound era. People were just getting used to, um, you know, sound. And you see this kind of transition addressed in films like The Artist and Singing in the Rain. 
you know, different people, different studios, different artists were able to adapt to sound at different rates. Some people picked it up like it was nothing. It was just like, you know, completely um, with ease at, at transitioning into sound. Uh, other people, though, couldn't. You know, they couldn't make that transition or they struggled with it. Um, and sometimes you see in these films from this period uh, a sense of creakiness. That's a really great term used for some of these uh, early sound films. It's just, just creaky. And this is one of those. Uh, you know, it kind of has some of the weaknesses that you see in films of this era. Acting is definitely a, a big part of that. You know, Mary Morris, they, they waited for her to uh, finish up her, her stage run of this just to make sure that she would be cast in the film. And this was the only movie she ended up ever making. You know, they, they had plans after this movie to kind of turn her into a female Boris Karloff. This was a Paramount film. Karloff was over at Universal. And she didn't really care for the Hollywood scene, so she just ended up going back to the stage and never acted again in a film. But her performance is... And, and I can say the same for some of the other weaker performances. They just lack nuance to them. You know, same thing goes for, uh, you know, Anne Revere playing, playing her sister Caroline. You know, Anne Revere, this was her film debut. She was the only other cast member in the film who had come over from the stage production. And she would go on to have a really successful film career in the 40s. Uh, you know, she was one of the Best Supporting Actress Oscar for uh, National Velvet, got another nomination for the song of Bernadette, showed up in uh, films like Body and Soul, Gentleman's Agreement, uh, before unfortunately falling uh, victim to the Hollywood blacklist. Uh, during the uh, communist witch hunt era, which uh, really derailed her career. Um, you know, she basically went throughout the entire 50s, pretty much. Uh, I think A Place in the Sun was the last film she had released prior to her blacklist, and for, for the next 10 years, she didn't appear uh, in any uh, film uh, projects or TV projects until the 60s when she got uh, work on some soap operas and actually didn't make an appearance in a feature film, I think, until the early 70s. Um, but she, you know, even, even though she became more uh, natural in her performances with time as, as her career uh, progressed, uh, you know, both uh, both her and Mary Morris really uh, their performances really uh, again they lack they lack fine detail they lack that kind of like a realistic nuance to them. Uh, you know, Caroline, the character of Caroline and Revere's character is supposed to be someone who's more emotionally fragile, someone who has, you know, you come to understand it's been uh, psychologically manipulated, emotionally abused by her older sister. But she plays it very broadly. She brings a, a theatrical performance to the role, which goes beyond communicating this idea of instability and just uh, kind of turns her into this kind of two-dimensional character. And likewise, you know, um, the character of Victoria, played by Mary Morris. Again, she just there. Are, I mean, there are so many moments in the movie where you're just expecting her to twirl a handlebar mustache and you know let out a good laugh. You know, um, it's something that disconnects you from the narrative because it turns them kind of into two dimensional characters. You know, it turns um, Victoria into kind of like a, almost like a you know. Grim Brothers, uh, wicked stepmother type of type of part without um, really any any depth to it, and you know because they are two dimensional, you kind of come away just wondering why the people who are being persecuted in this film don't do more to stand up to to this this evil woman Victoria. So you know there is there are flashback there's a flashback scene which kind of shows how. She, you know, also uh, psychologically abused Rip, her half brother, 
uh, following his father's their father's death, and um, how this has kind of had an impact on him growing up. While he why he constantly feels the need to kind of give in to his older half-sister's demands, in addition to the fact that she also controls the family purse strings. But this is only very briefly uh, touched upon uh, throughout the course of the the film's 75-minute runtime. So what you're left with is characters who you're supposed to sympathize with, uh, Rip, his new bride, um, Caroline, the younger sister. um, But you just basically, you know, even though you're supposed to sympathize with them, it's hard to really uh, feel for their plight because you just constantly are, you know, you're sitting there watching this uh, woman, this older woman manipulate them, and you're like, why don't you just, like, leave? You know, slap some sense into her. Push her down a flight of stairs. Pull a Richard Widmark on her. I mean, there's a scene where um, Caroline catches the uh, bridal bouquet at the wedding, and she shows it to Victoria, and Victoria just points to the fireplace and... Um, you know, Caroline just sadly walks over and puts the bouquet in into the fire. Um, and it's that kind of thing where if we had spent more time really digging into the backstory of, you know, Rip and Caroline growing up underneath the rule of this evil woman, and if we had spent more time kind of even showing how Victoria became the way she is, um, it would add so much more to the proceedings, but because everything is kind of like communicated to you in shorthand, this is the evil, wicked stepsister or older sister, however you want to look at it, and these are the uh, you know the fragile, innocent young victims. It, again, it just kind of turns everything to kind of two dimensional and kind of takes away uh, a sense of reality from the proceedings, which in turn takes you know it diminishes your ability to relate to what's going on to relate to the plight of the characters which is important because you're supposed to you know you're supposed to when you see them being victimized you're supposed to you know empathize with them you know you're supposed to see that as a situation you want them to overcome but instead you just kind of like lose patience with them for just letting themselves be pushed around so easily by this uh you know almost cartoon character and really the first you know, full two acts of the movie going into like, it feels like just like the last 20 minutes is really where things start, you know, ca- picking up, kind of amping up. It kind of gets into that more gothic chiller territory. And prior to that, for like that, you know, it seems like almost like the first hour, maybe it wasn't that long. It's just this kind of not exactly super dynamically paced, um, procession of events of just the character of Victoria just being a jerk, <laughs> you know, like I said, you know, burning, making her sister burn the bridal uh, bouquet. Um, she, uh, she gives a, a really cheap set of uh, pearls as a wedding gift. Um, she's trying to separate uh, Rip from spending time with his, his new bride by just keeping him engrossed in family business matters. And, and trying to, you know, like I said, hires a private de- detective to insinuate the affair. And it's just, you know, one thing after another of just like, I'm going to make you miserable. I'm going to try to ruin this relationship. But without necessarily any, you know, n- not in a way that's really engrossing. And I think if they had taken that time, uh, whether it was through flashbacks or whether, you know, just, you know, starting the story earlier to really just spend time with showing again, how these characters became who they were, how Victoria became what she was, how she developed her younger siblings into these victims, 
that would have been really a lot more interesting. It would have been a more interesting storyline, but it also would have led up to a more believable uh, um, uh, series of events as we get into the relationship between uh, Rip and Anne. You know, I don't know that, you know, again, the film starts right at the wedding point. And they go off on their honeymoon, and they're gone for several months, and then they come back, and then uh, the rest of the film's events take place over a relatively short time. I don't know that we needed that much runtime of the film just devoted to the relationship between, uh, you know, bride and groom, which it's not the only thing that the film focuses on in that that 50, 55 minutes, but it does take preeminence. And again, I think that if they had if they had put more focus on just the backstory and shortened the attention on the marriage relationship and how that's being affected by everything, or just make the film longer. I mean, it's a 75 minute movie. You could have, you know, put a lot more meat on the bone, just had a 90 minute movie, 95 minute movie, not a, not unheard of back then. Um, the, I think it would have been a lot more successful. And I know people really, there are a lot of people who love, you know, uh, the performance of Mary Morris. It was, you know, when the film came out, it was, you know, got a lot of really good reviews. Her performance got good reviews. Like I said, they wanted to turn her into another Karloff. And to me, though, it just, you know, speaks of, um, it speaks of kind of like the the weaknesses you can see in some performances of this early sound era, where it's it's just, again, not much, not much nuance, not much detail, uh, playing broadly, you know, it, it comes as no surprise that her and Anne Revere are making their film debuts from theatrical backgrounds uh, in this movie. Now, this was directed by Charles Vidor, who this was, hopefully I'm not mispronouncing, maybe it's Vidor, but let's go with Vidor, why not? Um, this was just his second feature-length film that he had directed, and he would go on to a, a pretty successful career. Um, you know, he would do films like the classic noir Gilda with Rita Hayworth, uh, he did uh, Love Me or Leave Me, which is the acclaimed biopic with Doris Day and James Cagney. He did uh, the hit film Hans Christian Andersen with Danny Kaye, and also uh, Grace Kelly's last uh, last performance, The Swan. Um, unfortunately, he would pass away uh, at a young age, only 58 when he died in 1959. And I won't oversell it. I'm not going to say this is a really stylishly directed film, but I will credit, you know, you got to credit Vidor for being a director who's aware of the fact that I'm working in the film medium, right? Like, this is adapted from a play, but I can't just, you know, shoot the play. And so there are moments with lighting in the film or with camera shots and compositions where he is definitely putting thought into that and, uh, you know, applying the knowledge of uh, working in a, the cinematic medium as opposed to just the theatrical medium. Uh, there's a lot of little things he does with lighting to, uh, you know, to enforce the concept of uh, Victoria being evil uh, throughout the film. So again, you know, I'm not going to say like, this is like, oh my God, it, you know, at least it's really, you know, incredibly directed. No, but you know, it is, it is made by someone who understands um, the medium he's working in. It's interesting, though, because this is the same year The Black Cat came out over at Universal, uh, the first of the horror films to team up Karloff, Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi as horror stars, and directed by Edgar G. Ulmer. And it's interesting because that completely kind of opposite of Double Door is a film that really just holds up incredibly well. It's a crazy film. It's, you know, it, it touches upon everything, devil worshippers, um, 
people being skinned alive. Um, it's got uh, you know a guy sleeping with the corpse of his bride. It's just it's got Lugosi giving you know cast one of the few times he was cast as basically uh, the sensitive, the lead, the the good guy. Um, and it runs even shorter than this movie. I think that movie was only like sixty some minutes. It's incredible. Just in, in that is a very stylishly directed film by Edgar Ulmer, the one of the princes of poverty row. So I don't think that you know some might say, well, you know, you got to give Double Door a break. It's the product of its era. Well, the Black Cat was the same year, and doesn't fall prey to a lot of the same issues that this film does. And of course, there are movies that even predate this that don't. So, you know, watching Double Door, uh, you know, by no means was I, I bored. By no, by no means um, am I saying this is a film you shouldn't check out. But it's definitely one I watch, and I think, like, I'm glad I saw this for its place in film history, its place in the pre-code era. You know, Mary Morris was a known stage actress, so it's interesting to see her in a film, in her only film. But it's definitely not a successful film. Uh, in terms of what it's trying to accomplish. Um, in terms of the rest of the cast, you know, Evelyn, I think Evelyn Venable and Kent, so Kent Taylor, he plays, he's basically your male lead. He plays the, the um, you know, the half-brother Rip. And, you know, he never quite seemed to make it as a lead in bigger productions. And, of course, as time went on, he just kind of ended up working lower-budgeted films, did a lot of movies with Al Adamson, stuff like, as well as stuff like The Crawling Hand and The Phantom from 10,000 Leagues. He's, you know, he he's capable in the part of like this kind of pushed around, but trying to, you know, assert his independence half brother, you know, I, I, you know, neither here nor there with, with his performance. I think it's, it's interesting though, because he has the moments where he's, his part calls on him to do less is the moments where he's more effective. The more the movie needs him to be romantic lead or dramatic moment, it's where he comes across as more theatrical and more just kind of, you know, typical early sound era performance of that sort. But in the moments where he's just kind of having a more conversational dialogue, he is more natural in those. There's a, you know, there's a scene where he's talking with Victoria about the family business. You know, they own a bunch of properties in um, Manhattan and she's trying to, um, you know, Victoria's trying to separate him from his wife by just forcing him to do all this work for the family business so he can't have any time with her. And he's commenting about, you know, why don't we just hire an agent to handle these properties? This is ridiculous. I'm going to all these buildings, climbing up and down. I never see my wife. Um, and, you know, she talks to him about, uh, you know, no, you are the agent uh, that will handle these things. And he he complains about the time, the time crunch this is having on him. And she says, you know, that's that's the price of wealth is that, uh, you know, you, you might not have a relationship with um uh, you know, with your wife, with your bride. And, you know, he comments about how, you know, the price is too high, perhaps, and how he doesn't really, you know, he to hell with the legacy of this family of of generations of wealth and, and status. He doesn't really care about that. And it's it's one of his, um, one of the better moments in the film uh, in terms of just, you know, especially in the, in the parts of the film that are prior to the more gothic elements later on. It's just an interesting conversation about, um, about wealth. And there are moments like that in the film where, again, it's just, it's just a conversation between two siblings where it's not calling for always calling. I mean, it has its moments even in that scene where it's not calling for the most dramatic, uh, you know, um, 
display from from the from Kent Taylor, where he um, you know comes across as more natural. Uh, it's interesting too because I thought you know around the same time was when Universal did the Raven with Lugosi and Karloff that came out in '35, and there are moments in that film where like Lugosi again isn't being called upon to do the horror thing, isn't called upon to be leering at the leading lady or uh, harassing Boris Karloff or whatever. Here he's just having conversations, just normal conversations with people, and he's really naturalistic. Um, you know, as opposed to some of the horror moments where he might play it a little more broadly. So kind of Kent Taylor kind of has that aspect to his performance. Again, speaking to that scene about the conversation between Victoria and Rip where they're talking about uh, money and wealth and all that stuff. Um, it's interesting because there's, there's a line where, you know, he's, he says, why don't we just sell these properties? And she says, she responds, never sell. Never sell on the island of Manhattan. And, you know, it's just something I, you know, I've, I've seen a lot of films from this time period and to, uh, you know, have the scene that kind of really dives a little bit more into the, the relationship of wealth to land, specifically within New York City. It's something that hasn't really been so explicitly addressed, I feel, at least not in the films I've seen from this era. And so that was, a, that was an interesting moment. I think it was some of the, the, more, the, the writing that really stood out more to me throughout the film. But, um, you know, Evelyn Venable now, who plays Andero, the wife, who uh, she also is famous for uh, starring opposite uh, Frederick March in Death Takes a Holiday, the classic uh, 30s uh, romantic fantasy film, which uh, was remade much later, 60 years later, as Beat Joe Black with Brad Pitt. And she was also the voice of the Blue Fairy in Disney's Pinocchio. Um, she definitely again has kind of some of those qualities of a '30s movie acting, Hollywood, you know, Hollywood acting a little, you know, a little, not not terribly so. Not I wouldn't by no means theatrical in nature, theatrically broad, but she does have some moments where um, her performance comes off as a little more emotive than it needs to be in, in an unrealistic way. But she's still, you know, I I think that she's one of the stronger performances overall. She has a really effective way of communicating her character's struggle to just find good in life for her and her husband. You know, she knows that Victoria is a horrible influence. And, uh, you know, her first approach, of course, is just to find common ground. But as the situation becomes more, you know, disastrous and more uh, untenable, she realizes it's it's kind of about just, like, saving her and her husband. And her her struggle to to constantly find a find hope and find salvation in this situation um she does a really good like i said she does a really good job of of messaging that she's definitely someone who i'd like you know i see her performance in this film and it kind of stands out in comparison to some of the others um and it it's definitely someone who i'm like oh, i'd like to see more of what she did i'd like to check out more of her films actually one of the most naturalistic performances comes from uh, one of the supporting cast, um, Sir Guy Standing, who was a, a British actor um, who had found a success on the uh, British and American stage and then uh, started a film career in the early 30s. He had actually worked with Evelyn Venable prior to this in Death Takes a Holiday, and he showed up in movies like The Lies of a Bengal Lancer, uh, Lloyds of London. Uh, sadly, he passed away uh, just a few years after this film, 1937, when he was only 63 years old. But he plays the family's lawyer, uh, Neff, 
uh, is the name of his character. And I think that his performance is definitely one of the more um, effectively understated in the movie, even though, again, it's not a huge part, but it's, it's a significant part. It plays uh, uh, definitely as, as especially near, as with the film's ending. Uh, you know, he's key to the uh, event. And it was definitely something that stood out to me um, as uh, one of the more, uh, you know, like I said, uh, natural, um, realistic performances in the film. Now, this movie had never had a physical media release of any type, to my knowledge, until this uh, recent Blu-ray came out from Kino Lorber. Um, again, <laughs> the great the great label, doing some great work here, uh, doing the work of God. Um, they put out on Blu-ray with uh, a couple different commentary tracks. Um, so, you know, it's, again, this is not... Uh, this falls into that category of movies where I, I, I think I talked about this. Another review where I'm like, well, I, I'm not going to tell you it's good, but it is definitely something worth checking out. It's worth checking out for, again, just the history of being, you know, the sole film of Mary Morris as well as Anne Revere's first movie. Um, I, I, you know, I hesitate to push too much. It is a pre-code film. The pre-code element I would say is rather limited in this as compared to other pre-code movies in terms of content. I mean, uh, there's a moment where Rip says, damn, which, um, uh, you know, you know how big a deal that was in Gone with the Wind in 1939, five years later, which just kind of speaks to the, what the code had done to Hollywood. But whereas in this movie, I, I don't know that it was really of any great concern that he said that because like I said, this was pre-code, but I think that's as, as far as it gets in terms of pre-code content, not much in the way of, uh, you know, uh, scandalous uh, sexual or violent content going on. Um, you know, the, the film does advertise itself in the opening credits as being f based on the play that made Broadway gasp. And I, I don't know uh, to what degree, again, I don't know to what degree this film stays true to the play if, um, and, and to what degree that, that title card, the opening credits is uh, just, you know, being promotional or really accurate. Um, because I don't know how much really happens in this movie in terms of content that's really that, like, oh, my God, that was, I can't believe they just did that. Uh, I think I, I have a feeling that probably the ending of the film, which you can see coming a mile away, uh, I'm guessing that that is where the the this would have gotten this film or the play it was based on would have gotten the reputation as being the play that made Broadway gasp or being something um, uh, chilling uh, or in any way um, uh, alarming. But I would not go into this movie hoping to find a definitively pre-code film. It, it is pre-code, again, uh, but... Uh, aside from like that that dropping of the word damn i would not i would not consider this film too uh the most representative of what of what the pre-code movies were like i think there you know there are a lot better examples out there real quick though um the movie doesn't really have much of a score uh in it but it does open very effectively with uh a bit of classical music uh, johann sebastian bach's toccata and fugue in d minor which uh, memorably was one of the uh, pieces of classical music used in Fantasia. Uh, nice touch, though. It was a nice touch because I like that piece, and it, and, it, and it plays well for the opening opening credits. Um, Mary Morris, by the way, she would die in the year 1970, age 74. Um, but yeah, like I said, only movie she ever made uh, when she would have been just uh, just shy of 40 when she made this. 
So Double Door, definitely, uh, again, check it out. Uh, it's a film worth watching. It's got the two commentary tracks. But again, I would just, if you're going into it with the expectations of it being a great example of pre-code, if you're going into it with the expectations of, you know, wanting to see this kind of like, you know, mid-30s horror film, it's not, I don't think it's those things. Um, and I don't think what it's trying to be is effective at. Again, should have spent... Would have liked to see more of the uh, of the uh, backstory, the uh, history of this family, um, and some more uh, restrained acting. But you know, it's definitely that falls into that category where I still recommend it, checking it out for what it does offer and its its place in film history. So I think that's going to be about it then for tonight, uh, and we will be back next week. Uh, in the meantime, I uh, just you know keep. Keep spreading the good word of The Last Frankenstein. We're over 1,100 views on the YouTube uh, page, which is phenomenal. That's just great to see that. Um, and uh, Jay, Jay is going to be giving me some uh, footage that we didn't use in the making of on The Last Frankenstein, some of the interview footage. So I'm going to be cutting together some um, little videos that I'll be posting up to our YouTube cha channel. Um, in, you know, some segments with cast and crew as we go into uh, the release of the Blu-ray and DVD. So hopefully we'll start getting those up soon for you as well. But yeah, thank you for your support. Uh, if you have any uh, questions for the for the podcast, shoot us an email over at Carpet City Cinema at uh, Hila-Film.com. And thank you for listening.